It's great to be with you. We are so thankful for Bethany Baptist, for you all. If it wasn't for you all, our church would not exist. And I don't say that as a throwaway line. I'm serious. Our church would not exist if it wasn't for your support. If you hadn't agreed to support us, to uh, affirm our decision to covenant as a new church, we would not exist. And if it wasn't for your regular giving, we would not exist. And I believe if it wasn't for your prayers and encouragement, we would not exist. We're so thankful for Bethany and for your continued encouragement and support. Uh, it was a conversation with PJ more than a year ago that uh, germinated that seed for me and for us as a core team to decide to plant a church in Fullerton. And we're so encouraged with what God is doing. And I, I keep saying it's a delight to have a front row seat into seeing God plant a church and to use ordinary people like us to do that. I'm going to do something that I kept telling myself all week not to do, and I'm going to do it anyway. I am going to shrink a 50-minute sermon into 15 or 20 minutes. Pray for me. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's probably the largest section ever preached at an evening service at Bethany. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. As, as you're turning there to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, think for a minute with me about slogans. Slogans are powerful things. Slogans may clarify William Carey in 18th century England was dealing with a hyper-Calvinism that said God is sovereign over all things, so he's going to do what he wants to do, and that was used as an excuse to not engage in world missions. William Carey became convinced that while God is sovereign over all things, God accomplishes things in this world through means. He uses means. He uses people. And so he summarized in a powerful slogan, yes, we should expect great things from God, but we as those who are great commissioned people should also attempt great things for God. That's a, a wonderful slogan. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And that was a slogan that sparked our modern missions movement. Slogans can capture truth summarize them in a powerful way and clarify. While slogans may clarify things for good, slogans may also confuse. Slogans may confuse if they aren't true or if they are missing vital parts of the full picture. J.I. Packer put this so helpfully, a half-truth half masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. I'm going to say that again. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. You think of Job's friends throughout the book of Job saying things that were technically true. And as you read and as you listen, you keep saying, yes, but they're missing huge pieces of the puzzle. Now think of some slogans from recent days in all our culture that do a similar thing in terms of confusing us. Think with me of these popular slogans. You only live once. Be free. You do you. If it feels good. If it doesn't hurt anyone. You can't help who you love. My body. My choice. Now in first century Corinth, 
there were slogans that were bouncing around the Corinthian church that sounded good but were confusing God's people. People were using slogans as arguments to downplay sin and even to defend sinful practice. They were using phrases like food for the stomach and the stomach for food. All things are lawful for me. And Paul responds to these slogans by lots of buts, lots of yes buts. And he doesn't deny that these things have some truth behind them, but he must clarify. And what we have in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 20, are 10 reasons why Christians should glorify God with our bodies by fleeing sexual immorality. Now, when it comes to the temptation of sexual immorality, it is a perennial temptation. It is a pretty common human temptation. And when it comes to reasons to fight temptation, sometimes one reason isn't enough. And Paul gives us 10 here in our passage. I'm going to run through them very quickly and then lean in with a little more emphasis on the last one. So before I begin... The main point is Christians glorify God with our bodies by fleeing sexual immorality. And let me read verses 9 to 20. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. First century Corinth was a port city, a city that was a Roman city that was very prosperous. But because of its position in Rome and its place as a port city, it was a, a, a city that was rich and a city that was filled with all kinds of immoral opportunities for sin. In many ways, first century Corinth was the Las Vegas, New York and Los Angeles of its day. It was a place of fashion, a place of materialism, a place where you could make money quickly, but also a place where you could take part in all kinds of sinful pleasure. It was Vanity Fair. 
many ways, the things that the first century Corinthians were faced with in terms of temptations are the same kinds of temptations that we have in 21st century modern LA metro that we live in today. There was in Corinth a temple to the fertility goddess, whether you call her Venus or Aphrodite. This temple was a place where you would, if you were a pagan, worship the fertility goddess in order to have success in your life by having sex with temple prostitutes. Now, we may not have actual temples where you would worship a fertility goddess, but as we look around 21st century West, 21st century Los Angeles, we have websites devoted to the idolatry of pornography. And we have apps devoted to hooking up with strangers for any kind of sexual immorality that is our pleasure. These temptations are perennial. And yet, we as God's people are to be holy and devoted to him. Now, Paul begins with a warning saying that if we have been cleansed by Christ through his salvation, if we have been washed with Christ's blood, if we have been sanctified, made holy, and set apart, devoted to God, if we have been justified, made righteous in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God, we should not be characterized by unrepentant sin. Paul begins this section with this warning for those who may be deceived into thinking they are genuine believers, and yet their lifestyle may be proving that they are not Christians at all. However, to make clear what this list of 10 things uh, does not mean in terms of how we should hear this, let me say this very clearly. Living a life of holiness cannot save you. Paul is not saying that we glorify God with our bodies by fleeing sexual immorality in order to be saved. What he's saying here is the only way we can be saved is through what Christ has done for us. Friends, our only hope in terms of eternal salvation is not what we can do for God, but what Christ has done for us. Our only hope is through putting faith in Christ and what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And friends, if you are looking for salvation through your own good deeds, friends, you will not find it. That's, that's the wrong path. And if you'd, love, if you'd like to talk more about this, I'm sure one of the pastors here would love to talk with you. I'd be happy to talk with you. The only way of salvation is through Christ and turning from our sins, putting our faith in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. But for those of us who have been washed, who have been sanctified, who have been justified, verse 11... It is incumbent on us, now believers, to live a new and holy life. We are called as Christians to live a life set apart to God, and that includes our private sexual lives. And when it comes to such temptations, common temptations, it is helpful for us to have lots of reasons why we should not give in to such temptations. And that's what Paul does here. I think we have at least 10 reasons why we should flee sexual immorality. Now, I, I get this main point from verse 18, which is the first command in our section, flee sexual immorality. You think of Joseph in Genesis being pursued by Potiphar's wife to have sex with her. What does he do? Does he linger? 
Does he hang around? What does he do? He runs. I think that's the idea that Paul has here. We are to be fleeing sexual immorality. We are to, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, not allow even a hint of sexual immorality to be named among us. But we do this so that we might do bigger category, glorify God with our bodies. Verse 20. Those are the two commands in our section. Now, Paul has rapid fire, 10 reasons why we should not give ourselves over to sexual immorality. Look first at verse 12. Reason number one, it isn't good. Reason number one, it isn't good. Verse 12. You see them using a slogan here. Everything is permissible for me. But, Paul says, not everything is beneficial. As we think about uh, reasons for why we do what we do. I remember having a conversation with a professor with some friends who were asking, how far can I go with my girlfriend before getting married? And he said, you're asking the wrong question. We often think, how far can I go and still be within the Christian camp, but I wanna camp out right there on the border. How, how far away can I get from Christ and flirt with sin and yet still be within the camp. Where's, where's the line? We should not be thinking about what's wrong with it, but what's right with it. Is it right? Is it good? Paul says we need to now think in terms of how we act as Christians, not just what can I get away with, but is it good? Is it beneficial? You see here, people were using phrases like everything is lawful or permissible for me. And there's a sense in which that's right. As Christians, Christ has perfectly obeyed the law for us and we are no longer under the Mosaic law. However, we need to be thinking in categories of is it good? And he says, first of all, sexual immorality is not good. Point number two, why do we flee sexual immorality? Well, because it isn't freedom, verse 12. It isn't freedom. He says, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Friends, we have a very distorted view of what freedom is in our 21st century world. We think freedom is doing anything I want, whatever it is. But Jesus tells us that the one who sins is a slave of sin. And giving yourself over to sexual immorality is actually to remain enslaved to the sin that Christ has the sin that Christ has bought you from, and he has delivered you both from a penalty of sin, in terms of eternal salvation, but he's also freed you from the power of sin so that you can live a new and holy life as he has designed you to live. It leads us to point number three. A third reason for not giving in to sexual immorality, number three, it isn't what your body was created for. It's not what your body was created for. Look there at verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. There were people who were using phrases like food is for the stomach and the stomach for food to say that sex is only natural. I was given a stomach. There's food in the world. That's what it was created for. We have been given... Body parts, this is what they're for. We're just doing the natural thing. I read a, a detective novel last week. I like detective stories. And, and a character in the novel was a skeezy artist. 
And he talked about his sexually immoral lifestyle by saying, when I'm hungry, I eat. Talking about his sexual appetites. That's the idea here. Convincing ourselves that it's only natural. And yet Paul says, however, your body was not created for sexual immorality. It was created for the Lord. Now he means here, in terms of God's design for you, as we think about this reality, we have to think about what our bodies were designed for and think in creational categories. Theologians should do this. We should think about our original creation. PJ earlier talked about how it is that God made us. He, he designed us male and female, and he did this. He created us in his image, and he did it for his glory. That's what you were created for, for God. But you were not created or designed by God for sexual immorality. No, you were created as sexual beings, but to enjoy this gift of sex within and only within the boundaries that he set for it. That's point number four. It does not honor your creator. It does not honor your creator. This thinks now in terms of authority. Again, verse 13. You were created for the Lord. Your body was not created for sexual immorality, but your body was created for the Lord. You are created by a creator who has creator rights over you, and you are to be living your life under his authority. I had the joy of being able to name my three children because as a father, I have procreative rights over my children. I gave my wife, gave birth to them. But through procreation, couples have the ability, fathers have the ability to name their children. We see this from the beginning. God names Adam and Eve, but then, sorry, names Adam, but then Adam names Eve, and then they name their children, and all the way up until today. But when we think about the authority that God has as the creator, he has much greater rights much greater authority over us as his created beings. And giving yourself over to sexual immorality does not honor your creator who has authority over you. Point number five, it does not respect your body. Look at verse 14. It says that the Lord is for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Here Paul is thinking about these people who were seeking to separate our physical bodies and our physical selves from our souls. There was a, a philosophy that was both Greek and Roman that became crystallized in um, what eventually became called Gnosticism. This idea that we can separate our bodies from our souls. Do you see here that God is for the body? He shows this by having Christ take on a body and by raising Christ with a body, a glorified body, and planning, since he is the first fruits of the resurrection, to resurrect your body as well too. Treating your body as if it does not matter, does not respect your body because friends, regardless of how you feel about your body or feel in your body, God has eternal plans for your body. He's going to resurrect it. He's going to not only redeem it, but raise it and glorify it. And treating your body as if it's a throwaway thing does not respect the body that God has created for you. Number six, it misunderstands union with Christ and the church. 
Sorry, it misunderstands union with Christ, verse 15. And then it misrepresents the covenant with Christ and the church. That's uh, point number seven. Number six, verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? You see here, giving ourselves over to sexual immorality misunderstands our union with Christ. This is one of the most foundational pieces of, uh, of our theology of salvation, that we have been united with Christ. So much of the rest of our understanding of our salvation is connected with this incredible truth that when we are saved, we are united with Christ. We become one with him. Why is it that God can treat you no longer as a sinner that he casts out of his presence, but now as sons and daughters of the king? How is this possible? Well, it's because you've been united with Christ, friends. If you have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ and put your faith in Christ, the Father now sees you as if you were Christ himself. He sees you as a very child of his because you've been united with Christ. Treating your body in this way, giving yourself over to sexual immorality, misunderstands the reality that you've been united with Christ. Verse 15. But it also misrepresents the covenant with Christ in the church, number seven. Look there at the end of 15. Should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now I think that 1 Corinthians 5 through 7, these three chapters have the clearest teaching in the whole Bible on sex. Its purpose, what it was designed for, how it should be used. But it's almost all in the context of having to deal with misuse of sex for these young Christians. But here you see that Paul is bringing out realities that he explains elsewhere in Ephesians 5 to talk about what they should not be doing in terms of joining themselves with someone that is not their spouse. You see, God designed sex to represent Christ in the church, to be a picture and a portrait of that greater eternal marriage. Friends, if you are married today, your marriage is a lifetime commitment, but it's only for this life. There is an eternal marriage, one with Christ in the church, that your marriage is a penultimate thing. It's supposed to be pointing to that, to represent what Christ is like and the way that he loves his bride and what it is that we, the church, are like and the way that we love our husband. Giving ourselves over to sexual immorality misrepresents the covenant that Christ has made with the church. He's faithful to that covenant. Sexual immorality is an unfaithful act. It tells lies about Christ. Now, a quick caveat. If you've been the victim of any kind of sexual assault or molestation, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about being mistreated or abused sexually. He's talking here about a willing pursuit of sexual immorality outside of marriage, and that's his concern here. I want to make that very clear. God does not hold you culpable and responsible for what others have done in terms of their sin. And friends, there's so much more I could say about that, but I want to offer that as a, a quick caveat and, and a statement of hope, a hope of healing from such abuse. More quickly, number eight, it actually violates your body. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. 
sexual immorality because of the way that we have been created as embodied souls is a violent act against your own body. There's so much more I could say about this, but it does damage to you physically to give yourself over to sex outside of marriage. It does violence to your body. And then number nine, it disregards the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. You see there in verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Now, here, Paul talks about the reality that our own individual bodies are to be temples of the Holy Spirit. They are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's talked earlier here in Corinthians in chapter 3, talking about the whole church being the temple of God. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1 and 2. We are like living stones being built into a temple, a dwelling place for God as a covenant community. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2 as well. Here, though, he talks about the reality that since the Holy Spirit dwells inside of each of us as Christians, you, friend, you, Christian, individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is to be a display of God's glory as the Holy Spirit lives out Christ within you. And giving yourself into sexual immorality disregards the fact that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. When you give yourself over to such sexual sin, you're taking the Holy Spirit with you and you are refusing to allow God to display his glory through you. Similar to an earlier point, you tell lies about God. Now, this all comes down to the final point, number 10, and maybe the most important one. Look at verse 10. Tenth reason why we should not give in to sexual immorality? Well, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. You're not your own. Now, this is slave language. Sam Albury tells the story of meeting someone who had been the victim of kidnapping and then uh, becoming uh, a sexual trafficked slave. Talks about how this young woman said to him, he heard, she heard phrases like this, you're not your own, you've been bought, you're mine now. Now, that's frightening and scary language with someone who will misuse you and mistreat you, someone who has evil intentions on you. But for those of us who've been bought with the blood of Christ, being a slave of Christ is perfect freedom. If you've heard the first question of the New City Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism, you may realize that this is perhaps where it comes from. What is our only hope in life and death? Anyone? That we are not our own, but belong to God. That we belong, it, the longer version says, body and soul to God. We're not our own, friends. We have been bought. And if we have been bought by Christ through his blood, his precious blood, we are God's twice, both through his creation of us and then through his redemption of us. We are twice God's. And it is incumbent on us now to live as slaves of Christ, 
the cost has been paid, his precious blood. And what's amazing about this is the Bible talks about this in both categories of slavery and categories of freedom, both at the same time. To be enslaved to Christ, Christian, is perfect freedom. Because to be slaves of Christ is to have an echo of Eden, to have a glimpse of God's original design and creation. To be the slave of Christ who has only good intended for you and only your benefit in mind is perfect freedom. As Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him, having enslaved us, what? Graciously give us all things. How does he treat his slaves? Beneficially. He delights to give his slaves everything good. And to be a slave of Christ is perfect freedom. Friends, as we think about what it means to be slaves of Christ, we must embrace this counterintuitive reality. To be a slave is to be free. And in order to continue to live in that freedom, we must be careful of slogans that will deceive and confuse. Now think again some of these slogans. You only live once. Be free. You do you if it feels good, if it doesn't hurt anyone. You can't help who you love. My body, my choice. What do we say to this? Yes, but you are not your own. And if you're a Christian, you belong body and soul to God. And you are now slaves of Christ. And it's incumbent on us, friends, to glorify God with our bodies and with our souls by fleeing sexual immorality. Friends, let me encourage you. In doing this, to be able to demonstrate to a world in need of Christ through our holy lives together as Christ's covenant community, to display to the world echoes of Eden, glimpses of how things should have been before the fall, as we live as the holy people of God, twice owned by God, bought by Christ and slaves of his. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all. Lord, we pray that we would, as your people, glorify God with our bodies for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.